Welcome to the 24th episode of Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Rousseau, and I'm your host. If you feel that listening may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. Today's episode will discuss how thinness came to be an aesthetic and how anorexia might be romanticized through literature and culture. This is not a piece of condemnation, mostly because I do not claim to know what the right answers are. This is instead a piece of exploration, and hopefully you will find it as interesting as I do. Also, a disclaimer that this episode is entirely devoted to one eating disorder, anorexia nervosa. It is an illness specific in its soliloquization and idealization, as perhaps most apparent in the existence of pro-anorexia sites and communities that claim that the eating disorder is a lifestyle that one can adopt. The extreme competitiveness that characterizes anorexia allows for these groups to emerge, where unlike other undesirable compulsions, this becomes desirable and shared in a community. Anorexia is a compelling narrative, a story of self-denial and discipline that tests the bounds of human capability. Because our culture views discipline as necessary in self-improvement, anorexia is thus seen as the ultimate enhancement. We demonize self-indulgence, which is why eating disorders such as bulimia and binge eating disorder generally don't receive the same treatment that anorexia might. Anorexia is seen as an exemplar of control, while binging is the other extreme, out of control. Because anorexia can be romanticized in such a way and aligns with our value-laden approaches to femininity and beauty, it is the content of literature and film. We see eating disorder narratives about restriction more than we do other disordered behavior. Eating disorders other than anorexia equate to irresponsibility and a lack of bodily integrity in our cultural discourse. I felt this firsthand, as I only sought counseling when I felt out of control in my intake while overeating. Often this part of the supposed narrative of disordered eating is not included, despite it being a common response to the physiological and psychological stresses of starvation. Overeating and binging are silenced. They are left untold and unheard because they do not cooperate with the praiseworthy will of starvation. There is an overwhelming cultural narrative that anorexia, is a heightened state of conscience where self-sacrifice becomes the content of heroines. It is almost seen as a kind of metamorphosis, an elevated and transformed sense of self, which, if you'll notice, are the indirect aims of storytelling, to uplift, to enhance, to transform. Thus, anorexia and storytelling are entangled in a poisoned web of toxicity and glorification. The sickness means constructing an alternate reality, one where sacrifice and power are synonymous. 
it is important to recognize this dominant story in order to dismantle it. Prevailing anorexic narratives and explanations throughout history include the thought that anorexia and hysteria were synonymous, or that anorexia might be a development of tuberculosis, endocrine deficiency, or perhaps dulled pituitary gland functioning, anorexia as a guard against an irrational fear of pregnancy, as a veiled power struggle between an overbearing mother and their daughter, and, I was, and as a rebellion against the patriarchy. Most shocking, anorexia was at one time a demonstration of asceticism and supernatural ability. On June 7, 1866, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle published a story about an 18-year-old girl named Molly Fancher. When the article ran, Molly had avoided meals for seven weeks. Eventually, she became so famous that P.T. Barnum sought to recruit her. These are some of the false narratives of anorexia that must be broken if we are to truly understand the disease. Katie Waldman, a staff writer for Slate formerly, and The New Yorker currently, inspired this episode. Waldman, in 2015, authored a cover story for Slate entitled, We Need to Reject the False Narratives Around Anorexia. She contends that these false narratives contribute to low recovery rates and high mortality rates. Waldman discusses anorexic literature and how this influenced and exacerbated her own eating disorder. She argues that anorexia, instead of being the perfect story, is the enemy of narrative and of life. Anorexia is effectively a disease of contradiction. On the surface, it promises control, yet does so on a division of body from self. An acquisition of selfhood through the renunciation of life, through the very act of self-annihilation. Quote, Paradoxically, the compulsion undergirding anorexia is to become visible by disappearing. Contradictorily emaciating oneself in an effort to recreate the body into a form so confronting that it cannot be ignored, end quote. Anorexia thus collapses to extremes, martyrdom and survival, self-expression and silence, life and death. It says that the answer to being seen is to disappear. Anorexic literature, quote, commits the inherently literary self-mythologizing qualities of anorexia to paper, end quote. The illness exists as a character, relentless in its pursuit of its next victim. It is most visible and conspicuous in the poetry of Louise Gluck, who writes of her own disordered eating as if it bestowed her creative genius. It also was exploited by authors Emily Dickinson, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, Emma Wolfe, who was Virginia Woolf's great-niece, and Charles Dickens. Although the female authors may have explored restriction as a response to the pain and oppression 
faced by their marginalized position in the patriarchy, their confessions idolized and reproduced anorexia as a commitment to ideal femininity and mastery of self. Their message thus no longer existed solely on paper. It existed written on their bodies. Her pain is immediately legible on her shrinking body. Quote, In a reverse transubstantiation, flesh becomes word, becomes character. Only the most authentic artist could possibly live her art like that. End quote. Imagining oneself or one's eating disorder as a character then becomes admirable, a kind of self-objectification where one sees themselves as a stranger, under the spell of starvation. One's pain and frustration is validated by their body. Her art is living, breathing, existing on her person. The physical manifestation of the disease validates the emotional. The anorexic body thus exists as semiotic, communicating in flesh a pain without words. Quote, These metaphors, bone as hieroglyph, clavicle as cry, risk performing the same valorization they claim to refute. Ascribing eloquences to the starving body, a kind of lyric grace, end quote. Our wounds, in this case the anorexic body, thus speak for itself. In fact, individuals who are anorexic generally have differing brain function when it comes to viewing themselves. When looking at photographs of themselves, their map of brain excitations and dormancies mirror that of when looking at images of others. They literally see themselves as strangers. The female embodiment of pain is also eroticized and made a virtue. Sadness is, quote, interesting, end quote, notes Leslie Jamison in her magisterial essay on female pain, quote, and sickness is its handmaiden, providing not only cause but also symptoms and metaphors a racking cough, a wan pallor, an emaciated body, end quote. Sickness became interesting from the late 1700s to mid-1800s. Tuberculosis ravaged millions during this time. Its patients often suffer from severe weight loss, which is considered to be immunosuppressive and a major determinant of severity and outcome of the disease. Tragically enough, this thinness became appealing as a manifestation of female suffering. Sickness was, quote, a becoming frailty, symbolized an appealing vulnerability, a superior sensitivity, and became more and more the ideal look for women, end quote. Female pain became idealized, most so when it was visible on a woman's body. Quote, if excess flesh on a woman implies gluttony, a sin, or pregnancy, a shame, emaciation helps demonstrate the soul's dominion over the body. End quote.
Talking about suffering among women is a slippery slope, as their suffering can transform from an aspect of their experience to some kind of prerequisite and imperative to being a woman, where pain, quote, is the unending glue of female consciousness, end quote. Pain can be easily fetishized, and there is only a narrow sliver of witnessing pain in a healing way, in which the self can grow larger than its wounds without disowning them or dwelling. Anorexia is the ultimate exemplar of visible female suffering, where female victimization becomes spectacle. These are notions we must guard against as they may only continue the dominant cultural understanding that anorexia is a desirable end. Anorexia may initially be performative, of femininity, of tragedy, of willpower, but it seamlessly transforms into a cage where you die. We all search for language to explain our trauma and describe our story, as most extensively talked about in episode 20, the language of healing as storytelling. I've done that explicitly here in this podcast, in episode two, where I talk about my story. As humans, we will attempt to derive meaning from our suffering, yet it is important we denounce the romanticization or sexualization of said suffering. Anorexia is devastating. Eating disorders are devastating. Let's deconstruct this hierarchy of eating disorders as we unravel the poisonous rhetoric that starvation and restriction are glorified and poetic and expressive. They are not. We might also be extremely careful over the language we use to describe eating disorders because our language can easily shift to become celebratory and eulogizing. This kind of language has existed forever, and it was first used to describe the disease, predating its naming in 1873. The eating disorder recovery community today generally expects a certain mindfulness when it comes to recovery stories. Disordered behavior specifics, such as calories consumed, weight lost, miles run, hours starved, among others, are often criticized as triggering and potentially harmful. Waldman writes, quote, Thanks to the disease's competitive nature, these tidbits, ostensibly offered as warnings, can read as inspiring benchmarks or even veiled instructions, end quote. All of this discussion leads to a reckoning of my own involvement in the narrative of anorexia. In an effort of transparency, I'm constantly terrified that this podcast has done more harm than good. In fact, I'm not sure if it would even be worth it if it did any harm at all. I question if eating disorder narratives threaten recovery for the storyteller or the story listener, or if they worsen suffering. I've questioned if I've harmed anyone in this way by continuing to speak out about my own experience with anorexia. 
If you are listening and I have done that, please allow me to apologize. My intention with this podcast is only ever to heal. The aims of helping eating disorder survivors and desilencing an eating disorder experience may be contradictory, despite my initial belief that they are complementary. This is something I will continue to explore and wrestle with. Season 2 of HTIL is coming to a close, as this semester does, so be assured that as I continue to learn and grow, this podcast will as well. If you would like to learn more about what sources I use in the discussion of thinness as an aesthetic and anorexic literature, my citations will be placed in the show notes. Next week, HTIL will discuss eating disorder allyship. This will be our last episode of Season 2, so tune in on Friday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own eating disorder story, you can listen on any of these platforms. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. If you feel treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project HEAL, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States delivering prevention, treatment financing, and recovery support for those struggling with eating disorders. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment does. If you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTL has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts if you would like to interact with the podcast further or suggest your own episode topic. Please feel free to follow on Instagram at Heather Than I Look and Twitter at HTL Podcast. If you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message me on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. I would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heaver Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a, a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTL is a space of healing, recovery, and storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now.